Hi, I'm Lori Denning, and this is my podcast, The 20-Minute Scriptorian, where I explore LDS scripture and doctrine for the Come Follow Me curriculum for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Like most of you, I'm a typical Latter-day Saint, and I've held a variety of callings, from gospel doctrine teacher to institute. I've always loved learning and sharing the scriptures of Christ. Recently, I went back to school, and I'm currently a theology student where I get to learn context, history, ancient languages, and more importantly, how to learn. I thought you might want to share in what I was learning, and the 20-minute scriptorian was born. While I am a believer, these thoughts are my own, and they are not an official representation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks for listening, and join me on the journey as we explore the scriptures and the path of the disciple of Christ. Welcome back. This is Lori, and we are headed into part two of All About Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. Last time, we kind of went over that we were going to be taking a big step back and setting the stage and going through a number of steps to really try to understand what we were going to get into as we approach the Book of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon. And so if you haven't heard that first, How Nephi Sets It Up, part one, go back and listen to that because it's super awesome. But today we are going to go through part two, which are really these setups, the foundations, the building blocks, the things that we've got to remember before we get into Isaiah that will help us to understand it in the long run. So when I was a little kid, and I'm sure that this is true for most of you as well, I loved playing with Legos. You know, the little plastic bricks and you can just build anything you want. And you just see amazing people that could just build an aircraft carrier or uh, the Eiffel Tower or, a, you know, a car that actually runs or something like that. And in my mind, you know, I was just, wow, I could, if I just put enough effort into it, I could build these things. But you could build uh, anything you could come up with. And so you just work on these little tiny devices and, oh, it's so fun, right? Legos, just hours of fun. Just don't step on them. But I loved it. And they're amazing. And with just a couple of clicks, it, boom, anything. Well, Isaiah is a little bit like building Legos, right? You, you have to know the fundamentals. You've got to know how to put the little bricks together and, and build a little bit at a time before you can build, you know, the Millennium Falcon or something really awesome. And, and in fact, as we'll see in Isaiah, he has these building blocks, these fundamentals that he's always referring to. And he just, I think of them as kind of hyperlinks on a website, right? Sometimes the word will just say covenants or uh, the you know, something about Jesse or whatever it is, and he just assumes you know what that is. In fact, Nephi tells his brothers that he had to spend some time explaining to them uh, how it was in Jerusalem, these building blocks. They had to learn them too. So it isn't something that they were just out of context, you know, thousands of years ago, and we didn't really understand the context of what was going on. So what we're going to do today is go through those building blocks, those little uh, hyperlinks that are gonna jump out. Most of them are gonna to be totally familiar to you. Um, a few might not be so much. But one thing I know, like Legos, the more you know these little building blocks, the more you see them grow, the more you'll see them in Isaiah, and you'll understand what he's trying to say. So you'll start out with a few blocks, but pretty soon you can make something really awesome. So take your time, go through these. Uh, maybe make some notes, refer back to them, do your own scripture study on these concepts. These are just a few of them that I think I see over and over again, but there's certainly more, and you'll see them throughout the whole gospel 
by the way, I was terrible at Legos. I thought I could build something great, but I never really did. Hopefully we're better at Isaiah than we are at Legos. All right, let's jump in with the foundations, the building blocks, the hyperlinks, the little chunks that we need to know. All right, let's just jump into these so we find out. One of the first ones, ones we've talked about a lot, one you're familiar with, covenants. Again, some of them that you'll hear will be something like new and everlasting covenant. We're going to find that. Abraham in Genesis 12. The Messiah um, as part of being the victor, 2 Samuel 7. We're also going to hear about being a priestly nation in Exodus 19. So these are some of the key themes of Isaiah and in the whole Old Testament is covenant. And because Nephi and his family are an Old Testament group, and so are we, then you're going to hear about covenants a lot. From before creation, God made a covenant with us, the new and everlasting covenant. But what is it? Why is it so important? Uh, on the, the church gospel topics website, it says this, a covenant is a sacred agreement between God and a person or group of people. God sets specific conditions and he promises to bless us as we obey those conditions. When we choose not to keep the covenant, we cannot receive the blessings. And in some instances, we suffer a penalty as a consequence of our disobedience. Covenants mark the path back to God. Isaiah reminds the people of a couple of key covenants. He reminds them a lot. Did I say a lot? Well, it's a ton. It's even more than a lot. He is going to remind them of these over and over and over and over and over again. So what's the new and everlasting covenant? Uh, it's kind of all of the covenants rolled into one, right? It's kind of the overarching concept of, of covenant, the new and everlasting covenant. Now, when I was growing up, I remember thinking that was just marriage. That was just the sealing covenant, but that's not exactly true. There's the um, new and everlasting covenant, kind of all of them, and there's a new and everlasting covenant, which could be one of them, could be baptism, could be um, the sealing covenant, could be whichever one, okay? So, so, but the big idea is that they are new because some of them have been restored, right? They've been restored back to earth today and they are everlasting because they never end and are continuing from ancient days until today. So covenants, I mentioned a couple of those key ones. Well, we're going to do uh, Abrahamic covenant next, but check out 2 Samuel 7. This is really critical. Uh, 2 Samuel 7 is the promise that the Lord gives to David and the tribe of Judah that says he will establish a ruling and everlasting kingdom through David's family. So you're going to hear that one. Exodus 19, uh, this is when the Israelites are at the uh, foot of the Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, which was a big mountaintop where on top was a bush or a tree that was lit up and full of fire right we call it the burning bush where God was ready to make a covenant and welcome us back into his presence wow this sounds so familiar and so he's going to make them a priestly nation a group that would intercede for the nations okay so go back and read Genesis 12 Abraham Second uh, Samuel 7 Exodus 19, kind of remind yourself of those general ideas of covenants. Let's talk about the second one, Abrahamic covenant. This is, this is the granddaddy, kind of literally, of all of them. And, and I remember it with what we call the five Ps, place, which would be like the promised land, a, a land of inheritance, posterity, 
family, right? And you've heard this as many as the uh, stars in the sky and the dust of the earth or the sands of the sea, right? Just uh, posterity. Priesthood, the authority to act in God's name. Protection, that could be from enemies, temporal, spiritual. People, that a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, that the nations and everyone would be blessed through this family. So the five P's, place, posterity, people, priesthood, protection. Wow, did I get them? Place, posterity, priesthood, protection, people. Yeah, so God is going to bless Abraham. And through Abraham's family, the whole world's going to be blessed. And this, the Lord has a plan to save everyone for all time, starting with this family, right? So Abraham and Sarah and their family will be an example to the world. Then that family will be the way the Lord's going to bless everyone. So we think of Abraham as the start, um, but this covenant has been, you know, since Adam and Eve. So I know we call it the Abrahamic covenant, but it's been around from the beginning. Uh, once Adam and Eve leave the garden, and God's presence, the Lord makes covenants for his children to return. So Adam and Eve, all the way until today. The people of Isaiah, the family of Judah, need to be reminded of this important covenant. Nephi loves talking about the covenant. His people need to be reminded about it and how it's going to bring us closer to our heavenly parents. It's going to help us understand the Savior. It's going to mark the path back to them. And I bet we need to be reminded of this covenant too. All right, so let's do the third one, the Davidic covenant. We mentioned it in 2 Samuel 7, but here God promises David that through his family, a king will come and a king that will be established forever. And the king will be from David's family. Uh, here are some of David's family members. So if you hear one of these names, it's linking you back to this Davidic covenant. So um, uh, Grandpa... So you have uh, Jesse, uh, you have, uh, well, you have David, and then Jesse is his dad, and then down below him would be his son Solomon. So you're going to hear potentially Jesse, David, Solomon, and and they are all from this tribe of Judah. Well, what, you kind of say, well, Lori, okay, that's not our tribe, There's, I, I don't know why that's important, so help me out. But throughout history, people just, right, like us, want to live their lives, they want to raise their families, pursue their dreams in peace. And, and when corrupt people want power, they take over, even through war and destruction. But one day, God will put the perfect ruler in place, a king that will ensure that we can live in peace. That king, that anointed one, that Messiah will bring with him peace, justice, happiness that we all want. And that king will come from this family, the family of Jesse, a perfect David. And that's King Jesus. All right, next one. We mentioned it was Exodus 19, priestly nation. Uh, you'll also hear it said, um, I, we love it in Exodus 19. I think it's even a scripture, mastery scripture, right? A peculiar people, a chosen nation. So again, when the Israelites left Egypt after the Red Sea and the miracle of the Passover, they traveled to Sinai and there was that mountaintop where they received the new law and a new covenant. Um, there, there we learn that they were to be a chosen people, chosen to help be an example of the Lord in the whole world. On Sinai, the Lord says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, ye shall be a peculiar possession out of all the peoples, you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. 
Why use the word word priestly to describe a na- describe a nation? I mean, men, women, children, everybody. You're a priestly nation. That's kind of unique, right? Well, think about it for a second like this. The priests act as a go-between, an intercessor between uh, God and the people. So uh, God is so holy and so removed that we remove ourselves from him. And the priests are a way to intercede uh, between that, right? So you think of the tabernacle or the priest. So that, that kind of go-between. Um, you, the Israelites are the priests for all the people of the world. So you'll hear about the special responsibility of the Israelites with words like chosen or choice or priests or any other time the the Lord reminds the people that they have been blessed and so have more responsibility. So you might say, well, Lord, that's the Levites. And he didn't make this promise to just the Levites. He says this is to the family of Jacob. Okay, so the Lord is, uh, well, first, what do they have to do, right? They have to be an example. They have to learn his ways to qualify for these blessings. They have to learn the covenant path. Then, then they can teach the whole earth about God and be an example showing the goodness of the Lord. They kind of refer to it a lot in the Old Testament, like the Lord's like, they will look to you and say, clearly God is with these people. In fact, he says he chooses them not because they were big or because they were great. It's because they're small, right? Through small things, marvelous things will come to pass. And that's the same with the Israelites. So think of that one, priestly nation, peculiar people, chosen. You got it. All right. Here's one that we also use a lot and has a lot of different ways to think about it. Heaven and earth. You kind of hear that back and forth. Maybe the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion, Temple Mount, could be even Eden, Eden Garden, uh, Eden Garden Mountain, any of those, okay? And this is a common idea is that God is going to have us return to him, right? Or progress and, and come back into his presence. We often say um, entering his rest. More commonly, we probably say return to his presence. But uh, the scriptures a lot of times will say entering into his rest. The idea is simple. Um, it's said in a lot of different ways, right? God's holy, perfect, and his place is heaven. Uh, we are less perfect and we're on earth. And God wants us to return to his place. And so the first location was Eden, where humanity and God walked and talked together. And God has also met with humanity on many mountains. We just talked about Sinai, for example, or in the temple or in the tabernacle. All of these places are a little bit of heaven, right, where God meets us in a holy and pure place. When Jesus came, he reminded us uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, uh, like Matthew 3. He was telling us that through him, we could regain God's presence. We could be pure and holy again. We could return to Eden. We could go home. When you hear words like heaven, earth, temple, holy mountain, Mount Zion, Mount Zion is just another name for that joining of heaven and earth. New Jerusalem, a perfect ideal where King Jesus will rule. This is the idea. Uh, you'll hear a lot entering into his rest. Even the idea of the promised land, there's a physical inheritance, but there's also that kind of uh, figurative, metaphysical reference. We'll enter into the Lord's rest. We'll go back into the Sabbath, the Lord's Sabbath, the seventh day, Eden. Get it? Okay, you're on the right track with that one. All right, here's one called the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord. One day, the Lord will come and he will set things right, right? He's going to come. He's going to be the victor the great deliverer. This day is called the day of the Lord. 
this day starts to talk about that future time when the Lord will return to earth. Um, the day will come when the, he'll be the victor. He will defeat his enemies. Sometimes there's kind of a phrase, a prefix in the front, the great and dreadful day. That day will be pretty great for the righteous, but pretty dreadful for the wicked. So the day. Uh, sometimes a trumpet or in Hebrew, a shofar, you've seen it. It's kind of the ram's horn trumpet will sound and it will introduce the day. Amos was really big on this. The people kept thinking one day the Lord will come and stomp out our enemies. And they didn't seem to think that they had to have any personal righteousness. So Amos is the one that's saying it's going to be the great and dreadful day. And I don't know why you're hoping for it because you're not doing very well. So Amos has a lot to say about the day of the Lord. Daniel talks about it. Zephaniah, Joel, Malachi, Acts, Revelation, Nephi, Doctrine and Covenants. They all talk about this day, a day when Christ will return. It might be just called again, the day, the day of the Lord, great and dreadful day. Got it. All right. Here's one that we've heard a lot about too: the gathering of Israel. Uh, it could also be talking about one of the elements of it. So it could be the lost 10 tribes or a remnant. Uh, you also might hear the terms Ephraim and Judah, a couple of the tribes. So remember back in Isaiah's time, people lived in groups and they called them tribes. Then Jacob, who was later renamed Israel, had 12 sons. I know a couple of them were grandsons, but let's just go with it, right? They had 12 and they became the 12 tribes. And so you've heard these names, names like Reuben and Simon and Judah and Levi and Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, you might have also heard the more uh, Greek version of their names or the more Hebrew version of their names or the more English version of their names. So it could be Reuven, Shimon, Huda, uh, Yehuda, Levi, Ephraim, Manasseh, uh, Simeon, they're just a hundred versions of these names. So you've heard them, right? At the time of Isaiah, the tribes weren't doing very well, right? They weren't very obedient. And so the 10 of them had been conquered. And so we call those 10 tribes, right? The lost 10 tribes. Uh, the tribes also go by the name of the largest and the ruling uh, tribe, Ephraim. So they might just say, hey, Ephraim, and they might just say the 10, or they might also be called, confusingly, Israel. So Israel was the north side, right? The 10, the 10 tribes. The two tribes that live in the south, they're going to be home-based in Jerusalem, and they were Judah and Benjamin. And just to make it simpler, everyone just lumped them together, and they went by Judah. So you have Judah and Israel, or the north and the south, or the 10 tribes, and you get what we're doing here. Now, during Isaiah's time, these two groups didn't get along very well at all and, in fact, had already separated into divided kingdoms and they'd argued and they'd fought and they'd even warred a little bit. They weren't living as a united kingdom anymore. This isn't, this isn't David's time. This is later, and they've broken up. Um, and, in fact, at, is at the time of uh, Isaiah, Ephraim, the north, Israel, had already been enslaved and conquered and taken away. And Judah was in trouble of being conquered too. So Isaiah is just reminding everyone of this terrible event, how to avoid it, and that the people had to shape up or they were going to be overrun like Ephraim. That's the time when Lehi took his family out of Jerusalem to avoid the destruction. It's all during that. The ten are gone. Hey, look out. It's going to happen to you. This would be like our country being taken over. So think of your country. You're like, I might live in Canada or I might live in the Philippines. What would have happened if my country has been taken over? And some of us have been in our lifetimes. 
Uh, but think of the war, the destruction, the enslavement. Think about losing everything, but not only just your stuff, but what makes you who you are. It's just gone. And that's what Isaiah is warning about. But he's saying, hey, there's hope. There would be a small group, a piece, a remnant that would be saved. And this is a big theme, and you're going to hear this one often. Again, terms like the lost ten tribes, a remnant, a gathering, a scattering. Uh, it might be the tribes' names, Ephraim and Judah, or uh, Judah and Israel. Anytime you hear that, kind of remember back to the destruction of the north, the warning to Judah, but the hope of a remnant being brought back. Now, if you look at your scriptures and you have them physically and you say, I'm going to look at the Bible and I'm going to look, is the Old Testament or the New Testament bigger? Yep, Old Testament's the big chunk. Now, when you think about the Old Testament, you're like, it's got all those names, uh, all the books, right? There's the first five books of Moses, great. You've got some of the writings and the poems like Psalms and, and uh, Proverbs and you kind of set those to the side. And then you got all those names. Some of them are histories like uh, Kings and Chronicles, but there are all those uh, prophets in those names. Now, the majority of those prophets' names, when you get into the ones that all end in Ayah, Isaiah, uh, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Jeremiah, uh, and then even things like Haggai and um, Daniel and uh, Obadiah, uh, Jonah, they're all written in this time period, about the same 200 years. Um, so this was such a big event for them that almost all of the Old Testament is written in this time frame, either right before for the north, Amos is writing to the north, Isaiah is writing in the south, Jonah was from the south, he had to go talk to the Assyrians. I mean, it's all in this time frame. So you're going to hear a lot about this. This is a big deal. Okay. Nephi also is scattered and gathering in the same time frame. Okay. A lot to say there. All right. Moving on. The next one, seed or branch, uh, anything that's kind of agricultural about a tree, seed, branch, root, stump, um, offspring. Sometimes it'll go, Hey, Murphy, Murphy says, hi. Isaiah loves, 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 loves these comparisons. We know we all do. It, it tells a story of the way something we can understand quickly. So when you hear these, a lot of times it's to explain the idea of King David and his family, right? So we already talked about them a little bit, but he's going to use this idea and we're going to hear about potentially a seed, a stem, branch, even a root or a stump. And, and he's just using the comparison of a tree, a family tree. And this family tree that he's often referring to is going to be uh, King David, the tribe of Judah, could also be the whole family, the tribes of Israel, okay? And he's going to talk about these. Um, he's specifically going to use the tribe of David and Judah as being a tree, and so it's kind of like uh, Jesse might be the roots, right? We, we kind of get that, and then David is the uh, stump or the stem or the middle part, and then... Um, Obviously, I don't know very much about trees. And then the branches are the family members going out, the new family. And that new might be even Jesus himself. So so think of the family tree idea and you'll get it. So if you see any of those plant kind of metaphors, uh, you'll kind of remember that one. All right. Here's, here's one that uh, the Israelites were very serious about, exile. We live in a world... Uh, it's pretty safe sometimes, right? So our country, a lot of our countries have been stable. Uh, we haven't been overrun of too much. You know, a lot of it's, there's been some, of course, but 
not everyone's been so blessed, but there's been a fair amount of stability. But that wasn't true back then uh, in the time of Isaiah. And the Israelites were living in a time when their countries have been taken over. And remember, the people of the north, Ephraim, they weren't living in their homeland anymore. They were in exile. So being outside your home, your country, away from your people was frightening. You were powerless. You couldn't worship the way you want. You lived in fear, at risk all the time. That's what it was like to be in exile. How do you live in Babylon? How do you live? Remember Daniel is the story of being in exile. How do you live there and and yet be obedient? How do you observe your culture? How do you learn to be a Hebrew if you're in the middle of downtown Gentile? And so there's this idea of being in exile, being away from uh, kind of your home base. Just like those people, we are away uh, in our earthly homes from our heavenly home. We are exiles from heaven, just where we learn and we're tested. So the idea of being in exile, both earthly and heavenly, is common. On the flip side of that is the idea of deliverance. So one of the most striking stories for the family of Israel is the story of the exodus from Egypt, right? You know this one. This is the, the Moses story and the crossing the Red Sea and Charlton Heston and all that and the Prince of Egypt. The family, remember, had been taken over by an oppressive government. The big bad, uh, Pharaoh, has made them servants and slaves and they cannot worship or live in freedom. They cry out to the Lord to save them, deliver us, right? Deliver us from our oppressors. And the Lord sends a deliverer to save them, to redeem them, to pay the price, to free them from the big bad. Deliverer comes from God himself to guide them to freedom. The people of God journey into the wilderness. They go through trials to prepare them for the promised land. In Exodus, Moses is the deliverer. In the Book of Mormon, it might be Lehi or Nephi. Like the idea of living as an exile, we also see the idea of deliverance uh, of hope, of freedom. Sometimes the idea is physical, like with Moses. Uh, sometimes it's an allegory or a symbol for our desire to be freed from sin and suffering. There is a great deliverer who will lead us all to a promised land, his rest, and that's Jesus Christ. Justice. Um, this one a little bit different than we might think of in uh, in our Western cultures, for sure. Uh, when we think of justice, we probably think of like making something right or uh, someone getting what they deserve, right? I want my justice. Uh, the idea of justice in Isaiah is that and more. Justice meant righteousness. It meant that things would be fair and set right. The word means full of righteousness or morally just. Right and just, righteous and justice go together. So if you were poor, you would be taken care of, right? You're like, maybe I was just born here. Uh, I didn't even get a chance. Um, I was in an oppressive society or I was um, a marginalized community. Um, if for Israel, that would have been you were a woman or you were a widow or you were an orphan, something like that. And so you just wouldn't have ever been able to progress. So justice would have been um, making, setting that right. Um, again, you could have been taken advantage of because your social class, race, gender, and it would be made fair. It would be made just and there would be justice. Isaiah tells the people that they're to give justice to everyone, everyone who may have had a tough time. In those days, again, widow, orphan, immigrant. Oh, that is interesting. They needed God's 
help. Uh, they need God's people to make things right, give them a fair chance, help them out in life, give them justice. Being part of God's representatives as that nation of priests meant that the Israelites needed to give justice to those who didn't have it. They need to give to the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant. They needed to sit with the new kid in the cafeteria, give up their stuff uh, to someone that had without, teach a lesson, serve a mission, make things right one person at a time. Justice is serving the people they lived um, with like God would. All right, last one. Nations were Gentiles. Remember in Isaiah's time, people lived together in groups. We called them tribes. If you weren't part of the tribes of Israel, you were called Gentiles. It's just the word that means the nations, like the world or everybody else. It wasn't good. It wasn't bad necessarily. It just meant those that aren't us. So the thing that kept the tribes together was that Abrahamic covenant. So if you were a Gentile or part of the nations, you didn't have the covenant, at least not yet. Spoiler alert, the nations will get the covenant. Well, keep on reading. All right, Scriptorians, whew, we went a little bit long, but there are your Lego building blocks. Keep on reading, and we will hit uh, Isaiah Prep Part 3 next time.